Amos chapter 1, 1 and 2. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Lord, this is an old book written 800 years before Jesus came. A different culture, a different history, but God, mankind has not changed since the dawn of creation, and your character remains faithful. And so, God, we ask that you'll help us today to go back in time and understand what Amos was preaching about, who he was preaching to, and Lord, help us to make right application for our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You may be seated. The words of Amos. Amos tells us who he was. He was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. Those words he elaborates on with a relative clause right at the beginning. Those words which he saw. The Hebrew word to see there is hazon, which means a vision. So he was a seer, one who saw the words of God. He saw, and it was concerning two nations, concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. It's interesting that he sees these words, they are concerning Israel, but he mentions that they were in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, because he was from Judah. He wasn't from Israel. And so he's reckoning his prophecy with the kingdom that he was from. And he also mentions an earthquake. Now that earthquake is somehow also connected to King Uzziah. But his address is mainly to Jeroboam and to Israel, the son of Joash, who was king of Israel. And then he says that the Lord roars from Zion. So this is a warning. The book of Amos is a book of calling people to an alert. The lion is roared. The lion doesn't roar unless he's taken something. Two can't walk together unless they've come together and decided at an appointed time where they're going to walk together. And then he says that the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and he was a sheep breeder. He was a shepherd. And those pasture lands are going to mourn, so this is a message of judgment. And then he says, and the top of Carmel withers. So we've got to go back into history. We've got to go back into time to understand what Amos' words are all about. Carmel was an 
upland and it was lush because higher elevation often got more rainfall in Israel. But Carmel was also an area where King Uzziah had dug wells. We're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that Uzziah was a man who loved the soil. He loved horticulture. He was a man of animal husbandry. He, he loved flocks and breeding animals. And so this was his pride and joy, was this area of Carmel. And Uzziah hears right now that this top of Carmel is going to wither. Now, judgment on Israel and Judah in the time of Amos for the rank and file population was unthinkable. And we can, we can think of that as Americans. We almost think we're impervious to judgment. We watch the world and we see all that's going on in the Middle East and in Europe. And we somehow think that America lives in this isolated bubble. And so we can see some application right here that, that God is calling a nation who is at ease. Two nations that are at rest. And Amos is saying God is not at rest because God sees the underlying current of these two nations. Amos was called to preach to the powerful kingdom of Israel. Israel had not reached a zenith of power like it had right now since the times of King David and King Solomon. He was addressing the religious elite of his time. I want you to, to turn over to, to chapter 7, and we'll just read a couple of verses, because I want to see and show you what he was up against. So Amos chapter 7, starting with verse 10, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, now that's, that's wrong right there. There were to be no priests at Bethel. There would be no priests at Dan. So let me just give you a short history lesson of what's happening in Israel and Judah. Why is the prophet addressing two kingdoms? It's because there had been a civil war, north against the south, and they had divided and Bethel was the worship place for the northern kingdom. But in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, I will only pick one place where I will be worshipped. And that was the city of Jerusalem. You will build no temples. You will do no sacrifices. And there will be no priestly line other than from the family that derived from Moses and Aaron. They were from the lineage of Levi. And so the Levites were the only ones who were to be priests. And they were only to be priests in the city of Jerusalem where God's temple dwelt and his glory dwelt. And so right off in this verse we see that Amaziah, he was a priest, but he was not a priest of God. And he wasn't a priest where God's people should be worshiping. They set up 
golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. And that's where they went to worship. The only reason Jeroboam is on the throne is because his grandfather, Jehu, executed wrath on the household of Ahab. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever had. And his wife was a Jezebel. She was Jezebel. And so Jehu had executed God's judgment on that family. And Jehu had gotten rid of all Baal worship in the nation of Israel. And so God promised him, you will have four descendants to sit on the throne. And so Jeroboam is on the throne, a grandson of Jehu. But this is what Amaziah is accusing Amos of. He's accusing him of a conspiracy. Again, I think we can make some application to modern-day America. When you stand for truth and you see the world in apostasy and the world going into globalism, they accuse Christians, oh, you're part of this conspiracy theory. And that's what they were accusing Amos of, because he was speaking God's truth. So as God's people, we can expect resistance, a conspiracy in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. Amos was preaching truth. He was preaching that people needed to change their attitude about who God is and His holiness and how God is to be worshipped. In chapter 5, he says, get rid of all of your noise and all of your vials and all of your music. I'm not impressed with it. I want justice to run down like mighty water. I want mercy to be like a stream. And those are the things that God delights in. And Amos was heralding this message because God had given him the word of the Lord. He says, the land's not able to put up with it. For Amos says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall be led away captive from their own land. There was probably nothing less probable in the eyes of the Israelites that they would lose their freedom and their independence as a nation. They were at the height of their power. And yet God had a different message for that nation. When a people thinks that they are invincible, they are so ripe to fall. Turn over to chapter 6 and verse 1. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. You're just relaxed. You're thinking this is the house of God. This is the place where God is. They trust in Mount Samaria. That's where the northern kingdom worshipped in the mountains. In the high places. You remember when Jesus went through Samaria? The Samaritan woman said, We worship up in these mountains, but you worship in Jerusalem. Well, that's what they're talking about here. The Mount of Zion, or the Mount Samaria. The notable persons and the chief of the nation. Go down to verse 12 of the same chapter. Do horses run on rocks? Does a plowman Plow with ox on rocks, yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over low Debar, 
who say, Have not we taken carnium for ourselves by our own strength? That sounds like America. We have done it. We're this great nation. But behold, I will rise up against this nation, O you, O house of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. They will inflict on you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. So when Amos is confronted by Amaziah, he says, Go home, you seer, you prophet. You are giving these visions. Verse 12 of chapter 7. I'm back in chapter 7, sorry. Go home. Flee to the land of Judah. Eat your bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel. Shut up, Amos. We don't want to hear you. You go home. You don't belong here. Four, this is the reason why. It is the king's sanctuary. The word there is Kodesh. It is the king's holy place. And don't you mess with it. And don't you confuse us with truth. We're comfortable doing what we want to do. Amos was nothing but a fig-picking farmer. He was a shepherd. And God has called him to denounce judgment on the king Jeroboam, the mightiest king that Israel had in generations, and to pronounce curse on this false worship of Bethel. He says, go home, never prophesy here again. And I love Amos' answer, and this should be our answers as well. When the world stands against you and I, we can answer just like Amos did. I was no prophet. I wasn't the son of a prophet. But I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. I'm a nobody. But because I know the God of the universe, God has given me the authority. God has given me the power to come and do what I'm doing. You and I, we might feel so insignificant. North Valley Bible Church is a drop in the bucket in the state of Utah. The state of Utah has less Christians than any other state of the Union. Two percent of our population in this state are followers of the biblical Jesus. That's staggering, folks. We have got a job to do. God has given us a commission to take this news to our fellow Utahans. And we might think that we're nothing but fig-picking farmers. But we are ordinary people. And God will take and use ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Because it's God who equips us. It's God who completes us. And it's God who empowers us. Look what Amos said. He says, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't the son of a prophet. The son of a prophet is a technical term. You can go over to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, or 1 Kings chapter 6, where Elijah and Elisha had the school, and their pupils were called the son of the prophets. And so what Amos is saying, I didn't go through the proper divinity school. 
I didn't get the training. I don't have a Bible, Bible certificate behind me. I'm not a priest. I'm not a rabbi. I'm a nobody. But God called me. Look what he says. The Lord said to me, the Lord called me. Then the Lord took me as I follow the flocks. The Lord said to me, you go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So let's go back over to chapter 1. And let's kind of see who Amos really is. He's from the area of Tekoa. Tekoa was a steep area. Not steep this way, but steep in the sense of a desert high grassland, and it was where Bedouin shepherds lived, poor people. Sycamore fruit was the diet of the low-class people. That's all they could afford. And so this is who Amos is. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not from a noble city. He doesn't have any academic credentials. And he's a man of absolutely no financial means. And this is who God likes to use. God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. It has nothing to do with our intrinsic abilities. It has nothing to do with our talents. It has nothing to do with our intellect, praise God. But what does it have to do with? Who is it that qualifies us? Listen to Paul's writing in Colossians 1.11. Being strengthened, talking about believers, being strengthened with all power. That's you and I. Jesus said all power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. As believers, we have been strengthened with all power, the rest of the verse says, according to his glorious might. So our power is in accordance or in agreement with God's glorious might. And what is it for? It's for all endurance and patience with joy. He has qualified you. That's our God. That's what Christ has done for you and I. We are qualified to do extraordinary things with all power according to his glorious might because we are in Christ Jesus. Amos was among the shepherds, it says in verse 1, who was among the shepherds. He was just run-of-the-mill guy, nothing special. He was just one of many of the other shepherds in the area of Tekoa. Tekoa was about a day's journey south of Bethlehem. It was an elevated plain, a steep area where Bedouin shepherds brought their flocks. He was, and, and Amaziah, his opponent, was a priest at Bethel. So what does this have to do with you and I? Amos had a real encounter with the living God. And Amos had direct revelation from God. Now, you and I don't have direct revelation in the sense that we see visions or hear his voices. If you're hearing voices, you probably need to have that checked out. But we have a real word from God. It's called the B-I-B-L-E, 
That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Did I spell that right? Okay. <laughs> A child's theology is enough for you and I, isn't it? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in his sight. We have a direct revelation from God, and I can read it anytime I want to and anytime I need to. And I can take that direct revelation from God, and I can take it people to anybody, and you can as well, because we have a living relationship. This is life eternal. What is life eternal? John 17, 3. Here's the definition of life eternal. That you may know him, the only true God. That's what eternal life is. And Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. If you know those things and you have placed your faith, nothing else, you have eternal life. And you've had an encounter with the living God, and God can write His Word on the fleshly tablets of your hearts, just like He did for Amos. So that's what made Amos special. That's what makes you and I unique. No priest, no prophet, not a son of a prophet. He was, ate the common food of the shepherds, those who lived in poverty. Amos's ministry could not have been more unpopular they opposed everything he preached on. At that particular time of history, these two nations were so powerful. And Amos was not politically correct. You and I, we don't need to conform to this world, but we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, will never be politically correct. And that's okay. Because we have a message and we have life eternal to share with people. Why is... Never mind, I don't want to get on this. I'll be preaching all day. Better stick with my text. Okay. Second Chronicles chapter 26. We're not going to turn there, but Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us about how powerful Uzziah was. Uzziah had completely conquered the area of Edom. He broadened their borders, and he had subjugated all of the Philistines. These are just several of the things that he did. Um, it's an incredible story what, what Uzziah accomplished. He fortified all the walls of Jerusalem. His father had the walls smashed by the northern kingdom, came down and smashed the walls. He re-established the walls, reinforced them, and not only that, he built towers on the city walls for defensive purposes, and he built towers all through the desert. So this, the, the kingdom is, is stronger than ever. Because of his love for horticulture and animal husbandry, he dug wells everywhere and irrigated the land of, of Judah. So it's prosperous. It's booming. And this is what Amos is saying. God is going to cause Mount Carmel to wither. Unpopular message. Uzziah had amassed a standing army of 300,000 men. It would have rivaled any 
other empire of his day. 2,600 officers Uzziah had that served this army of 300,000. The military was supported by the latest military equipment. They had armor, they had body armor, they had shields, spears, slings, and not only that, he had men who invented new types of military tactics on the walls. I think it sounds, reading Second Chronicles, it sounds like they were like an early form of a trebuchet. Is that how you say it? Where it, it catapulted masses, barrages of, of arrows and huge stones. I mean, this guy was advanced. And he was the longest reigning king in Israel or Judah's history, 52 years. Now, he got a little bit of a head start because he started at the age of 16. But Uzziah made one fatal error, and that's when his heart was lifted up. He had everything going his way, and as long as he sought the Lord God, God made everything he, do, do, everything he did to prosper. But he thought, you know what? There's one thing that I don't get to do. And I want to do that. I want to go in and burn incense. And he went into the Holy of Holies, or went into the Holy Tabernacle, where only the priests were allowed. And the priests rushed him out because they saw leprosy. And Josephus, the historian, tells us that that's when this massive earthquake took place. So God is giving his warning to Years in advance, Uzziah, don't get too big for your britches. Uzziah, remember that I took you as a 16-year-old. Remember, Uzziah, as long as you listen to Zechariah the prophet, I will be with you and I will prosper you. But the minute you think you're doing it on your own strength, I will bring you down. God delights in taking ordinary people to do the extraordinary things. Christ has qualified us. If you want to, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians with me. And I'm going to read a short passage to show you who God delights in using. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 27. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. So what does God choose? God chooses the foolish. God chooses the weak. God chooses the base. God chooses the things that are despised. And God chooses the things that are not. Amos fits that description. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't the son of a prophet. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't a priest. 
He had no credentials. He had no formal education. He was impoverished. And yet that's who God delighted to use. And God does the same thing in the New Testament. North Valley Bible Church. God wants to take us. He wants to take ordinary people. And God wants to double the size of our congregation. Now, how is God going to do that? Now, we can pray for God to send us other believers, but that's not the way God builds his kingdom because all we're doing is reshuffling the deck when we do that. God wants each one of us to win one and to disciple them and make them a follower of Jesus. That's how God wants to double the size of this church. And he can do that because God takes ordinary people and God does extraordinary things. I remember when first time I heard Dr. Falwell. He went to Baptist Bible College in Missouri and he had a boy Sunday school class. And he had five boys in that class. At the end of the year, he had four. And the pastor came and challenged him. And he said, D.L. Moody said this, the world has yet to see what God can do with one individual who has surrendered to, the, to Christ. And, and, I, and the world will never see that because none of us will ever get there. But that thought planted in, in, in Jerry Falwell's mind as a college student, he started going to the parks. He started doing Bible studies on the street. The next year, he had a Sunday school class of over 150 boys. He went to Lynchburg, Virginia, and purchased a Donald Duck bottling building that would seat 25 people. The next year, they built a church that would hold 800, and then the next year they outgrew that, and there was nothing special. I mean, if you talk to Jerry Falwell, he was nothing but a hillbilly from the mountains of Virginia. He had, I mean, he was called Dr. Jerry Falwell, but he had no doctor degree. There was an honorary doctor at Bob Jones, and they used to give John R. Rice's horse a PhD, a honorary doctorate. So that's about what that meant. Now, I know I'm bringing up a lot of names that none of you are probably familiar with, but these are my old Baptist fundamental roots that I grew up in. But I was impressed by those old-time preachers because they didn't have a lot of education, they didn't have a lot of credentials, but they believed in the power of God. And they changed their culture. They changed their society. And God is not done. He's not through with us. He wants us to do this here in Utah. And this is who God picks. Now, why does God do that? Why does he pick the nobodies? He tells us in this passage, he does it to bring down the wise, to bring down the mighty, to bring down the elite. And we can bring them into the kingdom of heaven. And the second reason God does it is that no flesh should glory in his presence. God gets all the credit. I mean, if we grow and we see people saved, people baptized, people becoming more like Jesus, you know who gets all the credit? God does. 
because he's the only one who can take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. Jump over to 2 Corinthians now with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. Who then is Paul? I'm sorry, I'm in 1 Corinthians. I like that, though. <laughs> who, who then is Paul? Who's Apollos? They're just servants. But let's go over to, over to chapter 2. I mean, 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 3. I'll get it in a minute. 2 Corinthians 3. And we have such trust, I'm in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that our sufficiency is of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but it is the spirit that gives life. God empowers us to be ministers of this new covenant that Jesus Christ enacted the night that he was to be crucified. This is how people come into the kingdom, through his broken body, through his shed blood, through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection dying on the behalf of our sin. That is the covenant that he made with us, and he has made us sufficient ministers because our sufficiency isn't from ourselves. That word sufficiency means ability. It all comes from God. God enables us. God makes us adequate to perform this task, and God's means is not through the law. Look at the last part of verse 6. Not of the letter. What is the letter? The letter is all external. The letter is all man performance. It's all living up to expectations of human traditions. And that's not what we're about. The Spirit. What is the Spirit? The Spirit is eternal. The Spirit is all-powerful. And the Spirit is genuine Christianity. And if we take that to the world, if we take it to the lost around us, God will enable us because all of our sufficiency is found in him. Amos was a nobody, and he was facing probably the greatest task that any pastor could have ever faced, and God used him. Now, what did Amos believe? I'm going to just sum this up really quick because we're almost out of time. For, the, for God to use ordinary people in extraordinary ways... In chapter two and three, or chapter one and two of Amos, there were three things that Amos knew and believed. He knew and believed in the character of God. He knew and he believed in the word of God, and he understood the oppressive weight of God's judgment. Now that all comes from chapter. 1 and 2 of Amos. And so I don't have time to go through with it very, very in depth, but I'm just going to try to, to kind of do it in a survey here in about 5 to 10 minutes. 
So he knew the character of God. He knew that there was a moral law of conscience to every heathen nation, to every unbeliever. We need to understand this today. Every unbeliever has the moral law written on their conscience. And that is what we need to take that group of people. God is extremely long-suffering with the unbelievers. And Amos knew that. He says, for three and even four, God is not going to turn away the punishment. It was a rhetorical, an idiom of speech to say that you can fill the sin all the way up, but when you get to the fourth level and you start to overflow with sin, God has finally got to bring judgment. But what does God bring judgment on the unbelieving world that doesn't know the Bible, that doesn't know Jesus? It's the law on their conscience, and that's what we can take them, because everyone knows these laws. Look at verse 3. The B part of verse 3, because they, so God's going to bring judgment on Damascus. Why? Because they have threshed Gilead with an implement of iron. They didn't have the law, but they knew in their own conscience that they had taken their wrath, they had taken their anger, they had taken their vengeance way too far. So the first thing that we see is that God is long-suffering until the point of no return. God judges those who just lack mercy. Look at um, chapter 1, verse 6, in the B part of that verse. Because they took captive of the whole captivity to deliver them up to Eden. They just didn't know where to stop. They took mercy and they threw it out the window and they went too far. And every unbeliever understands that. Every unbeliever appreciates kindness and mercy and compassion. They understand it intuitively because God has written it on their hearts. And Amos understood the character and the nature of God. They lacked faithfulness and unforgiveness. Let's go to verse 9. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not turn away the punishment. And here's why. Because they delivered up the whole captivity of Eden, and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Tyre was the nation that helped King David build his palace. Tyre was the nation that Solomon got all of his lumber to build the temple. And there was an agreement. There was a peace treaty between Tyre and the people of Israel. And they had an unforgiving spirit. And they had insincerity in their hearts. And every unbeliever knows that. You know that you keep your agreements. You know that you honor trust and, and integrity with those that you work with. And so Amos understood that. They also, there was a lack of respect for human dignity. Go over to verse 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, for four, for the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away punishment. Look at... And even an unbeliever written on the heart of their conscience knows that we respect and we honor human life because they ripped open the womb of the child of Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. Well, we see this today, don't we, in Hamas. 
but I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. Let's go down to the next verse that shows in, in 2b, where we just have respect for human life and human dignity. For three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they burned the bones of the kings of Edom to lime. Just lack of respect for human decency. And so understanding the character of God, understanding that moral conscience is a part of every, that's how God will take ordinary people and use them in extraordinary ways. The second thing that Amos understood that you and I need to understand is the word of God. He judged Judah, verse 4 of chapter 2, thus says the Lord to Judah, for three transgressions of Judah and four, I will not turn away its punishment. What was their sin? Because they despised the law of the Lord. Care and compassion for the less fortunate. The law expected that. Let's go to verses 2, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, for I will not take away its punishment. I want you to notice that all the way from verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to 16, that's all of God's indictment against Israel. Their standard of living and what God expects from his people is so much higher than the rest of the world. They were expected to have compassion and care for the less fortunate. Verse 7, because they sell the righteous for silver, they sell the poor for a pair of sandals, they were forbidden to take, take bribes because it would turn away the eyes of the just, and they were selling the righteous just for bribes, the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth upon the heads of the poor. They prevent the way of the humble. Verse 8, they lie down every night on the altar with clothes taken in a pledge. You say, what is that all about? If you go back into the Old Testament law again, and Amos knew the law of God, that a pledge was something that a poor person would give for food or for shelter or for work. But at the end of the evening, that pledge was to give, be given back to that poor person. And that command is found in Exodus 22, 26. And in Deuteronomy 15, 7, it says, Israel was commanded to have an open hand to everybody who came to you and asked for help. And so Amos knew the word of God. He knew that a Nazarite was somebody who was separated from God. So, and, and the Israelites at this time had, had contempt for that which was spiritual. Um, 2.11, I will raise up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O children of Israel, says the Lord, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Now, where was that found? That's found in Numbers chapter 23, verses 6 and following, that the Nazarite was forbidden to eat anything of the vine, any vinegar, anything alcoholic. And so Amos knew the word of God. 
So how does God use extraordinary people? We know the very character, we know the nature of God, we know the word of God, and we know the oppressive weight of his judgment. He says, I, he says this, this nation is like a cart full of sheaves. It is so heavy. Let's look at that in 2.13, and then we'll close. Behold, I am weighed down by you. As a cart full of sheaves is weighed down, therefore flight has perished from the swift. The strong shall not be strengthened in his own power, nor shall a mighty man deliver himself. So let me just kind of summarize this really quickly. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. First thing we need to remember is that when you are in Jesus Christ, you are qualified to do what he's asked you to do. Second thing, God delights in using the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. God resists the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. God delights in taking the foolish, the weak, the things that are not, to confound the powerful, the mighty, and the things that are. Three, the Holy Spirit is where our true sufficiency lies. Not in the letter, not in ritualism, not in routine, not in robotic going through the motions. It's inner, it's powerful, and it's genuine. That's who God delights in using. For knowing God's character, knowing God's word, and knowing the oppressive weight of judgment on people, God will take us and use us. Let me just end this with a prayer for us today. Lord, you are not concerned in my qualifications. Lord, you see our hearts. Today as a church, God, we ask you to incline our hearts toward you. God, by faith, by faith alone, we acknowledge that our sufficiency is all from Christ. And in my own strength, I can do nothing. I thank you for the all-sufficient power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill my calling. Lord, my desire is to know you and the power of your resurrection. God, today I'm asking you to write your word on the tablet of my heart so I can accomplish something of eternal worth. We pray this in Jesus' name.